that on? Hear me? Okay. One more thought from John the Baptist. <coughs> Interesting. Take your Bible. Turn to John 10. John 10, verse 40 to 42. John has been beheaded by Herod. So his ministry is completely finished as far as his earthly life is concerned. John 10 verse 40. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. Interesting. What John said about this man was true. Therefore, many believed. The basis of believing the gospel is that it is grounded on fulfilled prophecy. When the gospel is preached... The scriptures are the foundation for the truths we communicate. So we find here, John never did a miracle. And yet the Bible says he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Immediately we read that, we think Elijah, he was a miracle worker, wasn't he? That's, he's a prophet, but he's a miracle worker. But your Bible says... John the Baptist came, and it's Jesus' words, in the spirit and power of Elijah. I'm Pentecostal background, all right? Power, that's signs, wonders, and miracles, isn't it? How can you say <coughs> John, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah? Where are the miracles? Because the Bible specifically says... John never did a miracle. Have I got my concepts wrong? We've got to rethink a lot, haven't we? As Pentecostals, when we hear the word power, baptism of the Holy Spirit, we think signs, wonders and miracles. That's the first thing we think of. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, is it? Is that the only power of the Holy Spirit? What power did John have? John had power to preach. And we limit the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the gifts of the Spirit in their operation in the church and in the ministry in the, in the field when you go out of casting out of demons, all that kind of thing. John never did a miracle. But he came in the Spirit and power of Elijah. And the only thing you can put with that is that his message was with power and it must have been with power because crowds came to him. Crowds of the common people came to John to be baptised. And what did he tell them? Your lives are not right. Repent. You're a soldier, be content with your wages. <clears throat> you know, tax collector, don't take too much money. More than you're supposed to. So what's he hitting? The corruption in the nation of Israel. He's hitting at what was going on, unearthing the sins of the people. And they're broken before God. John must have been powerful. They came to him in, in crowds. When Jesus came, the Bible says there was a crowd. He was in the crowd, but you would not have known who he was. He was in the crowd. We have a very, very strange concept not based on scripture. I did. Because immediately I heard, ah, <coughs> baptism of the Holy Spirit, gifts. You know, signs, wonders, miracles. That's what the power is all about. But John never did a miracle. I thought, 
How can it be? He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, and I look at Elijah's life, and you see tremendous miracles done by Elijah. How can John the Baptist be come to Israel in the power and the spirit of Elijah when he never did a miracle? There's only one explanation. It was the power by which he delivered the message he'd been committed to. Did that follow in the early church? <clears throat> and we look at the early church, and as we go through the book of Acts, we tend to look for signs, wonders, and miracles, and there are a lot, because they are, they are witnessing in the world. That is their position. But please take your Bibles and turn to Acts 4. And please notice the wording. Acts 4, I took you to it last night but I'll take it again because Peter and John had been flogged, no, they had been commanded not to preach in this name but they said ought we to obey God rather than you All right? and they threatened them and they let them go. They came back to their own and they reported everything we are told. Then they raised their voices in prayer. And the first thing they said was, <clears throat> what's your King James say in verse 24? What's, someone got a King James. Would you read it? Because I've forgotten what it said. All right, so Lord, that's, <coughs> if you've got a concordance, Greek concordance, go and look up the word Lord here or sovereign as you've got it here. It is used only here. There is no other place. The word used in the Greek, where is my expert Greek friend? <laughs> Should be despotes. Ah? All right, now that's the Greek. That means despot. It, when we Englishize that word, we speak of a despot. Idi Amin was a despot. Means dictator. Right? Everything is under... He, a dictator just tells you, wipe this one out, do this. He's, he's a dictator. Eh? Calls God a despot. Now God is not a dictator like our earthly dictators, eh? God has everything under his control. So when they address him here, Lord, you made heaven, earth, sea, and everything that is in them. That is, all power belongs to you. That's how they address the God of heaven. We don't often address him like that, but this is the prayer of the apostles and all that gather. Acknowledging who he is like that. And if you got the sense of it, it is Oh, thou despot! That was the cry. Sovereign controller, absolute sovereign over all. You made everything and we're coming to you because this is the condition we now find ourselves in. When persecution comes, I think we're going to have to pray like they did. This is a, a very... <coughs> very uh, prayer driven by circumstance to get an answer from God. They've been threatened. You speak in this name. Threaten them. That's it. You're not to speak in this name. It's not politically correct. Our language, eh? Today. So here we come and that's the direction. Now they know they're not going to stop speaking in the name. So no, what do they know? They know they're going to face persecution. So what do they realise? They've got to have God on their side. <laughs> I'm putting it simply, all right? So we understand. So they pray. So they outline to God <coughs> what they understand. Please read down in your text. In verse 25. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our, uh, your servant, our father David. Why do the heathen nations rage and the people's plot vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. Rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. So that's out of Psalm 2. Then they apply it. They say this. Indeed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. That's history. That's what's happened. They did what your power, notice your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That is the scriptures were fulfilled in what took place. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats. You take a look. We're being threatened. So what are they appealing to? Heaven to intervene. That's it, isn't it? Are we ever going to be driven to this? We will be. We will be. <clears throat> what are we going to do? This must become the kind of prayer we are going to make. We will be threatened. We already are. All right? So what is their prayer like? This is what they say. <clears throat> now, Lord, consider their threats. And what are they crying for? Notice, enable your servants, that's us here, in the room that they've gathered there. What for? What were they praying for? Enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. That's the demand. They didn't say, Lord, come and do miracles. The basic cry they made is enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. What's that mean? Power to preach in the face of opposition. That's what it is. They add this bit because they know it is what God has promised. Notice you go on. Uh, <clears throat> Verse 30. Stretch out your hand. This is the confirming of that word. To heal, perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus because they had been commanded not to speak in that name. So they appeal to God in the name of your holy child Jesus. Stretch out your hand. Do these miracles to confirm the word. And you'll notice what the next verse says. <clears throat> verse 32. Verse, this is unity amongst the believers. When you are threatened and you're in the midst of persecution, you know what it produces amongst believers? Unity. You are driven to support and help one another. Because you have a common persecutor against. So this is the position they're in. So all the believers were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that any of his possession was his own, but they shared everything they had. They were bound together. Verse 33. Please notice the wording. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Not talking about miracles, it's talking about the message. With great power, they continued to testify. Testimony is what you say. When they prayed for God to intervene, they wanted power from heaven to speak the word they were committed to. And that is why the Holy Spirit was given. We only think miracles, and miracles are performed by the Holy Spirit through men. There's no question of that. But if we limit our understanding to that kind of message, this is the Pentecostal message, that should never be. The Pentecostal message has two parts to it. Boldness, confidence, power to preach God's word. And miracles expected to confirm that word because you're doing what he's told you to do. That's the book of Acts, and that's how it happened. Tell me, have we been sidetracked? I think we have in our thinking a bit. We have not taken into account there are two aspects of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to take you through John's message <coughs> to the nation of Israel, because there are two parts to John's message to the nation of Israel. <coughs> and so we, I'm going to take you as far as we get, and see how we go, all right? <clears throat> so, verse 
So that was the first thing that kind of hit me hard, changed my thinking. If we are called to bear testimony, witness, what do you really need if you're going to speak? You need power to communicate that message. You need confidence, boldness, to, in the midst of persecution and opposition, you need power to speak it. I will never forget. Now, it'll happen in ordinary things of life, all right? A lot of our witnessing you will find is in the world when you're moving amongst men, all that kind of thing. That's where you are going to testify. That's where we will testify. And that's where we want the, the power that God only can give to speak as we should with confidence the truth we have. Now, it'll happen in certain, some strange situations, all right? <clears throat> I was in teacher's college as a mature man, all right? We're all mature. We're engineering graduates, veterinary ve graduates. Me and I'm an agricultural graduate with degrees. They're all there to be able to teach us. <clears throat> now, the man who was responsible for what is called uh, relationships, uh, because when you go out as a teacher, you will have to control relationships, all that kind of thing. He was my biology teacher in uh, Teachers College, and I, I was doing biology. And the first week I'm in, in Teachers College, we are given our assignment. Mine was on photosynthesis. So I went to the man at the end, and I said, this assignment which we've been given, can I answer from a creation viewpoint? He said, how did you get in here? You're not going to pass. I thought, wow, <laughs> I didn't know it was like this. <laughs> All right? <laughs> so we go on, and I used to be uh, the butt of his videos that he showed uh, to try and turn me from what I held to, creation to, but I could see through the videos, uh, you know. The evidence was wrong, all right? <laughs> it was like he was presenting. So <laughs> comes to relations, and he's in charge of the sessions of relations between all these mature teachers, women and men, were sitting there, and he gives a scenario. It went like this. This teacher um, went out, teacher's college, and he went to a country uh, school and began to teach, and he got into relationships with one of the students, and uh, he began to be quite sordid and uh, unclean in the, in the thoughts he's communicating, all right? And he's pushing, he's pushing for people to comment, uh, particularly the women, he's commenting like this, and then there was silence. And I felt something rise in me like this, and I just said, if you had not taught them they came from animals, they wouldn't act like animals. There was dead silence. <laughs> and he never came back to the subject again. Now, that was not me. I felt this thing rise inside. I blurted out. It just came out. If I had a thought about it, I probably would never have said it. <laughs> because I, it came like a bombshell, right, in the whole thing. And I realised the Holy Spirit is real. That, the Holy Spirit gives you the word to say. He said, when you walk before people and you've got to answer, take no thought. It'll be given you in that instant. So, are we dealing with power to speak the truth in the midst of an opposing world? Is that what we need? Yes, it is. We've looked at the Holy Spirit. We want the miracles. We want all this. But God wants us to speak the truth. He'll confirm with miracles if it's the truth. We can depend on it. He's promised. It's one of his promises. All right? So we're dealing with a very important area. <coughs> So that's what they prayed, and that's what happened, actually. Now, I want to take you back now and take you to uh, John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist's message. So take your Bible, turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. <coughs> we are in John chapter 1. We've read through John's confession. That's one day. As you put it in its context, you are taken from one day to the next day to the next day to the next day. It's a very compact time that you have here in this section. 
So one day we have them going to John, asking who he is. The next day, I want to put it in its context, you'll have to put it in its context. Notice verse 29. I've read through before from verse 19 to 28. Now we're in verse 29. Notice your wording. The next day, after they'd come to John, who are you? So that's fresh in their minds. They've heard John's answer. I'm not the Christ, I'm not the prophet, I'm not Elijah. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. Now he's not alone. This is a crowd. John is speaking to the crowd. He sees Jesus coming towards him. And this is what he says. If you go to King James... Behold, look. I don't know whether he pointed. He was certainly identifying him out of the crowd. He was coming to John, walking. The crowd is there. And the message they hear, Behold, look, the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. So this is the first part of John's message. This is when it's given. Up to that, they've been coming to him, they've been baptising him in the Jordan, he's preparing them for someone who's coming, a latchet of his shoes, sandal, I'm not worthy to unloose. So he's presenting to them, there's, a man, there's one coming. He is greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to stoop down and undo the latchets of his, his sandals, whatever it is. So he's preparing them. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. There's one coming. So the next day, when John tells them, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not that prophet, who are you then? I'm the voice of one, as I says, crying in the wilderness. So he's in the wilderness, he's by the River Jordan. The next day, after these questions, he sees Jesus coming towards him and he, he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God! He identifies him. He takes away the sin of the world. That must have been an amazing statement, mustn't it? If you're a Jew and you hear the words, the Lamb of God, what are you instantly faced with? Passover lamb, aren't you? And if you went further enough back to <coughs> the Garden of Eden, what are, you, what are you faced with? God kills an animal to clothe Adam and Eve. All through, from beginning to end, he is called the Lamb of God. And John here, it's no longer a lamb as in the animals of the Old Testament. That can never take away sin. He looks at this man. He is a man. He's not an animal. He looks at the man and he says, Look at him, behold, he is the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. I'll tell you, if you were there and you had any understanding, that was electrifying to hear that announcement because John had told him he wasn't any of this. And the one who comes after me, he is so great, I am not even worthy to stoop down and do his sandals. The next day, Jesus is coming towards him and his cry must have rung out over the crowd. Behold, look, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. Now we leave that, go down in your text and you're down in verse 35. Verse 35, the next day, John was, there, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, What? Behold the Lamb of God. Same message as yesterday. Is he getting his point across? He must have. Why? Because your Bible says, verse 37, When the two disciples heard him, that's John's disciples, they heard him say this, they followed Jesus. That means 
they had been aroused. They followed him and said, where, where do you stay? And they spent their time with him. <coughs> and you'll notice, you go down to verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. So you have four days in concession, one consecutive, one, two, three, four, and you're getting it all packed into four days. Tell me, are things happening? We just look at it, we read it through, and we don't think, this is happening. This day it happens, next day it happens, next day it happens, next day it happens. But we just read it as though, you know, they're not connected. This is four days of sequence. Things are really happening in Israel. It is concentrated actions that are taking place. <clears throat> so we go to the middle part. John, go back to John 1.29. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then he says, This is the one I meant. When I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. It was a baptism of repentance. Get your life right. Turn from your sin. Because the Messiah is coming. And that is what the whole of Israel's expectancy was. A Messiah to liberate them from the Roman rule. Because they had been oppressed from the time of the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and now the Roman Empire, they had been oppressed. And now the Romans are still over them. They are not free. So what do they want? Freedom. Liberated so they can have the land and have the city and have their temple and have their worship. That's what they wanted. And they were looking for a deliverer. They were not looking for someone to die for sin. They were looking for a kingdom. Because the Bible is full in the Old Testament of a kingdom where the lion will eat straw like the ox, the bear will lie down with the lamb, <clears throat> the little child will put its hand in the viper's den, won't be hurt. They will hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. A king will reign in righteousness, princes will decree justice. You're going to have peace among the nations. He'll rule them with a rod of iron. Israel will be head and not the tail. And he'll set his king on David's throne and he will rule from Jerusalem. We want the kingdom. Sound familiar? Call kingdom now. Did you hear me clearly? It is called today Kingdom Now. That is what has swept much of the Western world. I don't know so much about the other parts, but it has swept the Western world. The Kingdom Now. We're going to have peace. We're going to bring it in. Everything will be right. That's not our message. That was not the message. And that's not the way they should have been looking. They had their eyes blind to the message of the Messiah, the suffering Messiah. They don't want that. Suffering is not a nice thing. Suffering, to the extent it's described in the Old Testament, is something that is horrific. It is real suffering. And you have 2,000 years of an intensity of suffering in a nation. It's called double portion. They were God's firstborn. And they got a double portion of suffering. They're going to get a double portion of blessing, yet, by the way, I had a lady come to me after your meeting now, here, and said, <clears throat> what do you believe about Israel? Do you believe that uh, they have no future. 
I said, do you mean replacement theology? She said, yes. I said, the Bible is very clear. When the Jews rejected the Lord Jesus as Messiah, they were given a period from 40 years, from 30 AD about to 70 AD, they were given opportunity to accept the Messiah again with the preaching of the apostles. And they rejected. And in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple, <coughs> destroyed the city, and scattered the Jews through the world. I said, that's 2,000 years ago. But I said, the Bible is full of prophecy that God will gather them back and bring them back to the land and he will do better with them then than in former times, including Solomon's reign. She said, I'm glad to hear it. I didn't know where you were going. <laughs> so she said, I'm sorry, I cannot stay for the second session. I would like to. But she'd evidently wondered what I was going to lead to after I'd been through. All right, I said, I have not got time to cover Daniel and Revelation. And she said, Romans 9, 10 and 11. I said, that's right. Yeah. She said, thank you very much. <coughs> so you're going to have people come in, aren't you, with big questions. That's one. right? And even the Pentecostal charismatic scene is starting to absorb replacement theology because of Bible colleges. That's the, that's the college scene across the world. <coughs> so when we come to this, we're looking at John the Baptist. And we're concentrated on four days in which immense things took place. Now this is John's first message, first part. There is a second part, but he concentrates on the first part. He will not concentrate on John in the second part of John the Baptist's message, Jesus won't, till we get to John 14, 15 and 16, and then in John's Gospel, he will concentrate it on John's second, John the Baptist's second part of his message to Israel. There are two parts, and we have to be distinct in our understanding. The first part is the responsibility of the apostles and the church to carry the message, Behold, look, the Lamb of God, He takes away the sin of the world. That's our message. That was what was committed to them. Has it changed? No, it hasn't. It's the same message. So I want to take you through and show you <coughs> how important it is to learn from Israel. When you come to John's Gospel, there are two incidents in the nation of Israel that illustrate for us in shadow realities about Christ. Now, you, you will know that I often teach shadow and reality, all right? I find it's a, a, a great way God has taught. So in John's Gospel, there are two uh, realities that are taken from shadows in the Old Testament. Your first shadow is found in Exodus 17. This is the first shadow we see. Exodus 17, from verse 1 to 7. They have come out from Egypt, delivered by the Passover lamb. They came to the Red Sea after three days. God did the miracle of opening the Red Sea. They crossed and the Red Sea destroyed all their enemies. Now they are heading towards Mount Sinai, but they have camped. <coughs> Exodus 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, travelling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So now they are brought to a place in the desert. God brought them there. It's desert. And I want you to notice there are probably three million people because there was 602,000 soldiers, that's 20 years old and upwards. You will have their wives, 
you will have those under them, younger than 20, you will have the old people, and since you've got 602,000 about army men, you have their wives, so that gives you one, one, 1. 1.2 million, one and a half, one, one million two hundred thousand, all right? What about their children? How many children each? I would say two children each. Oh, so what have you got then? Uh, you're getting into well over two million, you're getting into three million. We don't think like that. That's more than the population of Brisbane. Moving. And they have all the cattle and all the sheep and they're moving through a desert and there is no water. Right? You know what a drought is like, right? Australia's been hit with droughts all over and floods in other places. A drought is a terrible thing. When cattle don't get water, what do you get? They'll cry out for water. What are the children saying? Mammy, give us water. There's no water to drink. What happens one day you're in the hot desert and there's no water? You're getting desperate. Two days and you're really desperate. Your tongue starts to cleave to the roof of your mouth. You are you're dehydrating. God would allow the Israelites to come to a point like this when he promised to lead them into the promised land. If you were an Israelite, you would say, oh, what kind of God have we got? This what he does? You know what they said in your Bible? This is what they said. Verse 2. They quarrel with Moses and said, give us water to drink. <coughs> Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Meaning, who gives water, Moses or God? God gives water. When your land is in drought, who gives water? Mother Nature doesn't she? We are an idolatrous nation. 30,000 scientists just signed a petition, global warming is not true. Thirty thousand scientists signed a petition, global warming is not true, based on their understanding of science. What has global warming turned the nation to? Mother Nature is the cause of all that is happening to us. There is no God. He is not in control. So we come here and they're crying. Verse 7, 3. This is what they said. But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said... Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? They're desperate. Your children are crying out for water. You can't give it. There is none. If the God you worship brought you here, what kind of mother and father? Why did you follow this man? Can you imagine the grumbling and the the talking back and forth with the families, all that's going on. They're against Moses. They're against the God of Moses. <clears throat> so this is what has happened. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now there's plenty of stones in the desert. There's no short supply. So they're almost ready to stone me. Cries out to God. The, play, the thing is desperate. And the condition is thirst. What's that mean? When God brings a condition of thirst, the object is you turn to the only one who can give water and you don't complain. If he brought you there, he is going to meet your need. They had heard that he would bring them out. They had seen the miracles of God. The Passover lamb had saved them. They were led by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day through the desert. They come to the Red Sea. They're locked in. Pharaoh's army, his whole army, that means 
your Bible says, 600 chosen chariots. Put it in modern warfare, 600 of the best tanks of Egypt. And all the rest of the chariots of Egypt, that is every armoured vehicle of Egypt, is pursuing the nation of Israel and they have nothing to protect themselves with. They're slaves just fleeing because they've been liberated. And there they are and the Red Sea's in front and they can see the dust of the desert rising as the sun is going down. They know the army is coming across the desert. And the Bible says, the angel of the Lord's presence moved behind the nation of Israel. He became darkness to the Egyptians and light to the children of Israel. So Egypt is travelling now as the sun sets and it's darkness. They accept that's what's happening. But Israel, it has light, can see exactly what's happening ahead of them. And God is, tells Moses, stretch your rod out. And the wind blows and parts the Red Sea. So much so that the bottom of the Red Sea was laid bare and it dried out under the wind. And there was a wall of water, right hand and left hand. I tell the Fijians, I'll know what you were there if you're going through. You would have had your spear gun looking at what was behind the wall and trying to get fish. Here's a wall of water either side. And here is enough for the Egyptian army to come in. It is a great pathway. And the whole of Israel follow Moses, their leader. And they come out on the other side. And God says to Moses, stretch out your rod. Now he'd already taken the wheels off the chariot. The chariots of the Egyptians going along take a wheel off. This one can't go. Bang, bang, bang. And so it smashes into this one, smashes into that one. And the Egyptians said, the God of Israel fights against us. They'd had enough lessons back in Egypt, eh? Ten plagues. They knew the God of Israel. They said, he's fighting against us. Because we, our chariots are the best, all right? The wheels are coming off. And so they turned to get out. And God said to Moses, stretch out your rod. And God said to him, the enemies you see today, you will see them no more. They're dead on the seashore, the whole lot. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And you come, this God is leading. This God has done all this. You look back in your life. What has God done in your life? And then you come to a position in your life and you say, God, why did you bring me here? Isn't it true? We are no different. Brings us to a place. Why? Creates thirst, a condition where thirst, you, you, there's nothing to satisfy. Where will I get the help from? Humanly impossible. What do I do? Go to your leader. Ask him. Push him. Why did you lead us here? All right. Blame someone. It's always been, my wife said, it's a blame game from the beginning. All right? <laughs> so you come here, and that's what it's like. Moses said, they're ready to stone me. God said, take the rod with which you smote the Nile. Specific rod. Take the rod with which you smote the Nile. You go to the rock. Take the elders with you. I will stand there before you on the rock. You smite the rock and the waters will flow. So watch all Israel, watch. You've got to put it, if you're going to teach it, teach it like it happened. I don't think you can portray it clearly even in a movie. Here is Israel desperate, ready to stone most. They're angry. And all the instruction is, go to this rock. What can a rock do? A rock is a rock. You can't get anything out of a rock. True. You're in the desert. There is no water in the desert. <clears throat> Why would you take a rod and go and hit the rock? That's what the instruction was. So Moses obeyed, took the rod and the elders. But God had said, I will stand there before you. I will. You smite the rock and the water will flow. And when he hit that rock, you read your Psalms, it became rivers in the desert. It became rivers in the desert. 
because you don't get thirst. It went with them. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, they drank of that spiritual rock that went with them and that rock was Christ. So here you have the miraculous God in answer to thirst. They see an action with a rod with which he smote the Nile. What happened when Moses took that rod and smote the Nile? It turned red, blood, and they couldn't drink. Is that a miracle? Is that judgment on one of the gods of Egypt, the Nile they worshipped? That was their source of water. The rod Moses took, he was told, you take the rod by which you smote the Nile. God's judgment. What's happening now? The rock is there, I'll stand before you. Strike the rock. God's judgment. Who's getting hit? The one standing on the rock. The waters flowed. This is an Old Testament shadow with a New Testament reality. Take your Bible, turn to John 4. We're in John. That's where they're taken from. John 4. This is familiar, I guess, to most of us. If we're familiar with the scriptures, we're mostly quite familiar with this. <coughs> you remember, I'll go quickly through it. Just speaking. What happened was, this Samaritan woman came alone. She had a picture, a, a container on her, sh her shoulder, carrying it like this. And she came to the well, and there was a Jew sitting at the well. And she's a Samaritan woman. So, She's coming to the well to get water out of it to take back to the village she came from. The man in, sitting at the well said to her, Woman, give me a drink. And she said, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Don't you know Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? We're a despised people. You reject us. Woman, if you knew who asked you, you would have asked of him living water. Where do you get this water from? Right, the well is deep. Our father Jacob gave it to us. Is that there? <coughs> so he begins to introduce himself to her and says, Woman, go call your husband. I haven't got a husband. True woman, you've had five and the one you've got now isn't yours. Oh, you're a prophet. Why did she say that? Because that was her life. That was her life. And she said, you say salvation comes from the Jews. The mountain. We say in this mountain, woman, the day, hour is coming when <coughs> salvation is not found anywhere here said, <clears throat> I'll give you the exact words. Huh? Give me this water. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'll just take it. <clears throat> Verse 23, uh, verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice there's a Jew asking these questions of her. He said, salvation has come from the Jews. <clears throat> he said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. This is the only place you'll find in his earthly ministry. I am he. I am he. This woman who had all these husbands that were not her husbands, and now she's living with a man, <coughs> he's exposed her whole life of what it is in sin. To this woman, he reveals Messiah comes. She, she said, when Messiah comes, 
He'll tell us all things. What's he done? He's just told her her whole life. We call it a word of knowledge. Right? You have told the truth about another person, the woman. You know why? King James is excellent. When? Jesus said, I am he. She left the pot and in the King James she said, she went back to the men. That is a good translation. The other hasn't got that. Why is that important? I'll tell you, there were five men she went to. The first man that she had in relationship, second man, third man, fourth man, fifth man, and the sixth man she's living with now. And she said to all of them, she said, isn't this the Christ? He told me everything I ever did. No wonder it says in your Bible, if all prophesy and there come in one that knows not, God is an unbeliever, the secrets of his heart are made bare. Falling down, he'll cry out, God is in the midst of you. Was that what this woman was doing? Yes. You have the reality of the working of God, don't you? So what have you got? I'll tell you. You had thirst in the desert. Water came when the rock was hit with the rod of God in judgment. What about Messiah when he comes? He is the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant. What happened to him? And he said, I am. She said, I know when Messiah comes. You just, I am, he said. So she believed what she heard. And she brought those men back and they said, now we hear him, we be, ourselves, we believe on him. And, and many of them were affected by that woman's testimony. So what's the position? If you want eternal life, because Christ was smitten on the cross by God the Father, we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, Isaiah 53. The, the rod came down of judgment on that rock. That's the shadow. You go to the cross of Calvary and it is the rock Christ Jesus that's hanging there and he's cleft. We hide in the rock because he has been smitten. Water has flowed and if you have drunk the truth of what happened at Calvary, he said you'll never thirst again. It's living water I give. It's eternal life. So what I've given you is one shadow and it's reality. And that is the first message that John the Baptist carried. Behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. I'm going to leave it there. You have now had an hour straight. <laughs> I have a requirement. I have something that I possibly will have to do this afternoon. So... I'm going to leave it there.